We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Welcome everybody, it's Steve with Sense Fidelity. I'm coming at you with Professor Donald Livingstone of the Abbeville Institute. And this topic people may have heard, especially in recent days, with Texas talking about the S-word secession and a little other movements that you hear about, especially on air. Rush Limbaugh brought it up on radio. But I've been following the Abbeville Institute for a number of years, and the book, Rethinking the American Union for the 21st Century, which edited by Professor Livingston. So I asked him to bring, come on to give us a little intro or explanation on what secession is, but breaking it down. So most people probably think it's uh, the Southern states leaving uh, the 1860s. There's more to it. So Professor, thank you for doing this. Welcome. And uh, yeah, how you doing? <laughs> Fine, Steve. Um, yes, well, <clears throat> When we, uh, you know, the idea of secession is the idea of separation. Um, uh, it's the idea of dividing things. And one reason you would divide things is because they've gotten too big. It's too big, so you need to, you need to divide. A corporation gets too big and it, it downsizes. Now, in, the connect, in relation to political thought, uh, I think secession is tied to the idea of republicanism. The idea that people want to govern themselves mm -hmm. and they can't do it under a certain kind of regime, they think. And so they argue to withdraw and form their own political society. Secession is an effort by a political community to separate itself from a larger political society and govern itself. That's all it is. It comes now, from the Latin to withdraw. What? And it comes from the Latin to withdraw, right? Yeah. I think it's best for us to go back to the ancient Greek republics. The Greeks invented republicanism. Uh, somehow people got it in their heads in the Mediterranean area, the Greeks and later the Roman Republic, that they wanted to govern themselves. And so they overthrew their kings and established a democracy or a republic in which the citizens would govern themselves. Um, and this is the beginning of democracy and republicanism. One difference between democracy and republicanism is that in a democracy, the people, uh, as an aggregate, show up, and by majority vote, they pass laws. The trouble with that is that the majority can pass laws to do in the minority. Uh, so you can have tyranny 
in a democracy just as much as you can have tyranny with a single man. Uh, what republicanism does is it says that you cannot make just any law you want. You, you can make the laws you live under, but they must be in accord with a more fundamental law, which you do not make and did not make, but which you know through tradition. So a republic assumes there's a moral tradition of people who know what the fundamental laws are. Since they all sort of know that, the government can rely on that in striking down certain laws as violation of, of fundamental law. So you see the difference between a republic, which is basically a rule of law polity, and democracy, which is not a rule of law. The law is made every day that people want to make it. So that's a republic. And so it's the Greeks that established this sort of polity. And one of the things they said that it required, in addition to self-government and the rule of law, was it had to be small. Why did it have to be small? Well, if you're going to govern yourselves, this means you might be the ruler one day, but you might be the ruled one day. Mm -hmm. So we need to know the moral character of each other if we're going to govern ourselves. The rulers need to know something about the, the people, their character, and their interests. And then the, the people need to know something about their rulers. And since the one can be the other, it's very important that we know each other. And this requires a limit as to how big you can be. Obviously, uh, you, can, you can see, an, let's take an example. A jury is a, is a wonderful institution. It's it was concocted, by the way, in the Dark Ages. It's one of those things in the Middle Ages, like the parliamentary system, uh -huh. rule of law, capitalism, all of those wonderful things came out of the Dark Ages. Well, a jury system was one of them. And it, uh, but if you expanded it to 12 a pe hundred people, you wouldn't have a jury. If you reduce it to five, you wouldn't have a jury. There is a proper number that you need to do what a jury does. A jury has to get consensus, majority vote. One person can nullify. So that that is so it, it has there is a limit. Uh, an English cottage in its garden is a beautiful, charming thing. But if you expanded it to three times its size, though perfectly proportioned, it would be a monstrosity. So beauty and charm require a certain size and scale. In fact, everything in nature, Aristotle says, has a function above which or, above which, or below which becomes dysfunctional. In other words, if it's too big, doesn't function well. If it's too small, doesn't function well. So proportion, harmony, these are fundamentally human nature to the biological sphere, to architecture, uh, to really everything. So it's true of republicanism. If you're going to have that peculiar sort of political order called republicanism with the rule of law, then you have to be limited in size. Well, what's the, what's the right limit? Well, that's a difficult question. 
because there are all sorts of contingencies. Mm -hmm. um, if you're in a country where you can only move about with cart and ox, getting from one place to another is size is going to be one thing. But if you live in a country where you can jet across from New York to uh, Los Angeles, you know, in four hours or five hours, uh, size is not so important. So these are contingencies. However, let's begin with the minimum. Aristotle says a, a republic should be have enough people to satisfy the basic function of functions of political order. Security, justice, prosperity, a conviviality, a high degree of and a high degree of human excellence. Well, how many people do you need for that? Well, let's look at one great republic, Athens, 5th century Athens. It produced world-class architecture. We still admire the Parthenon, world-class sculpture, literature, medicine, uh, <clears throat> uh, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. We still study Plato, Aristotle, not only students, but philosophers to this very day. Well, that's a pretty, that's, that's a lot. And um, they did this with a population of around 300,000 people. That includes slaves, of which there were about 100,000. That includes uh, foreigners who were living there and, and women and children. So around 300,000 people. Now that was one of the largest republics uh, in Greek civilization. Most were considerably smaller. There were some other, Syracuse uh, was, had some size and so on. So we can conclude from this that you really don't need but around 300,000 people to achieve greatness in literature, art, medicine, and so on. Now, this is not to say that Athens was self-sufficient culturally or materially. Um, in fact, little states uh, cannot supply all they need. So they have to trade. They love free trade. Little states love free trade. <clears throat> Secondly, they can't defend themselves against the big boys without some help. Often, sometimes they can, but uh, often they like there's a, there's a you know David and Goliath story comes up. But uh, they need they need help. So they need alliances. Now, what the Greeks created was a brilliant civilization. But notice. It was, it was composed of around 1,500, historians estimate, little republics mm -hmm. scattered around the Aegean Sea. Plato said like frogs around a pond. And the colonies going as far as the Black Sea and Naples. Mm -hmm. And that's all Greek civilization was. There was no central authority. There was a common language, a common religion, um, and a common interest in trade. And yet it produced a brilliant civilization. So not only do we know that you don't need many people to have a great republic, Athens was a great republic, and you don't need all that many people to have a great civilization. Greek civilization was composed uh, of around 8 million people scattered out, and those little republics. The Persian Empire, which was the world's first superpower, 
over 40 million people under its control faced off against the Greeks. Now you would think they could just go in and pick them off, but they failed time and time again to defeat them. By the way, the Greek civilization laid the foundations for Western civilization. That's what we rest on. And the Romans built on what the Greeks did. So we're very much indebted to the Greek warriors that were able to hold off the Persians. You know, we would, if, if, if the Persians were occupying all of the southern, of southern Europe, we would be a different country. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know where we would be. But anyway, uh, so here, you, here are the little Greek city-states um, defeated the Persian, they didn't conquer the Persian Empire, but they, they kept them out. Later, Alexander, one of the Greek states, his father was king of Macedon. It wasn't quite a republic, but it was a little state. Conquered um, Greece and unified Greece. Well, once all that Greek talent and everything got together, Alexander conquered most of the known world and spread Greek culture everywhere. That's why we have a Greek Bible. That's why the Hebrews spoke Greek. Hebrews wrote in Greek. Everybody wrote in Greek. And, and even when the Romans took over, uh, people were still writing in Greek. In fact, the Christian church, its first liturgies in Rome were, were in, was in Greek, not Latin. Um, so, however, although Greek civilization, Hellenic civilization, lasted for centuries after uh, Alexander, uh, the Greeks republics that created it lost their vitality. The life went out of them. They, they, they continued what they were doing, they developed and that sort of thing, but it didn't, the, the vitality was gone. So the vitality depended on that independence of each little state competing with each other, finding their abilities, refining them and so on. Now, republics, the, the Roman Republic was very aggressive and it conquered everything around it and it incorporated the conquerors into the system and made some of them citizens. As it expanded, more and more foreigners became citizens and they had no loyalty to the Roman tradition. They didn't even understand the Roman tradition. In other words, they weren't Republicans. The Republicans, remember, they have a they have a moral tradition that they understand, mm -hmm. and that got diluted with foreigners, uh, and a lot of money uh, uh, and wealth went into Rome, and people started fighting over it, and they had a civil war, it collapsed, and when there's a civil war and chaos, out emerges a strong man to establish peace, as in a mafia war. <clears throat> And so they lost their republicanism. So Rome is a great example of a republic that was doing fine, but it didn't, it kept expanding its territory, expanding its population and its republican life. It was just, there was a strain on its republican life and it, it, it collapsed mm -hmm. and ended up being a, mon a monarchy. So the lesson that was carried right on up through the Middle Ages, right on into the modern world was don't get too big 
And this was true. You had republics throughout the Middle Ages. Italy was filled with republics scattered all over the place. Genoa, Florence, Bologna, Milan, <clears throat> uh, Siena, Pisa. They were republics. One and into, they were just little republics. <clears throat> Florence, with around 60,000 people, was a leader in the Renaissance. World-class architecture, Brunelleschi's dome was uh, the, la uh, the largest uh, unsupported dome in the world. Um, uh, World-class sculpture, painting, literature, Machiavelli, political philosophy, uh, Michelangelo. That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. solid lineup. <laughs> A little republic of, uh, of 60,000 people. Yeah. Uh, Venice was one of the wealthiest centers in Europe. A republic. It was called the quote Serene Republic. The Serene Republic. It had around 175,000 people uh, in the in 15th century or 1500s. <clears throat> and um, uh, it, it was a leader in the arts and sciences as well. So these are examples of modern or early modern republics, 60,000, 175,000 or so, uh, that. Uh, that flourished. Now, Venice, Venice survived around 1200 years until Napoleon conquered it in the 18th century, with this big French army. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, that's pretty good. Uh, so Repu little republics can last. And not only can they, uh, they're little in the sense that the city states are small. However, that doesn't mean they, they can't hire people. That, that doesn't mean they have people under their influence that they can use. So Venice had a lot of help from people around it, course, paid for, and all the rest of it. And same with Florence, that's 60,000, but there was a greater Florence, mm -hmm. but they weren't citizens. You see, they weren't, they weren't part of the Republic. Mm -hmm. they, they, were, they were hired hands or they were, they were in alliances or whatever. So I think you get the picture. We have this, we, we start with, we start at the beginning of Western civilization and there, these people throw off kings, no more kings. The Romans and the Greeks hated kings. I, that hadn't really dawned on me until fairly recently reading them. They just couldn't stand kings. I mean, they're about as bad about as we, we, you know, we don't like kings. We can't even conceive of a king in America, right? Can you conceive of it? Now there was an attempt to put a king in Mexico. Maximilian. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. But but you we Americans just can't conceive of. Perhaps we ought to have a king. That might be a good thing. But what we have now, we kind of got an elected king now. <laughs> yeah. Monarchy is not entirely to be despised. There's a lot to be said for monarchy. And by the way, there could be a whole other talk just on monarchy. Right. What, what's good about? Because after all, there must be some reason why most of history is controlled by monarchs at least the big civilizations. There must be some reason for that. Um, maybe not. So that's something to think about. <clears throat> but we're talking about something that's not monarchical. We're talking about an attempt to live outside the sphere of monarchy. We're talking about an attempt to govern ourselves. <clears throat> and that begins with republicanism and small scale. Now, let me just say one thing about um, the Greeks and the ability of a little state to defend itself. Whenever, whenever this comes up, people always say, well, they poo-poo it and say, well, you know, 
little states can be crushed by Louis XIV or Hitler or Stalin or whatever. And there's a sense in which that's true, but there's also a sense in which it's not true. Mm -hmm. Switzerland has survived from 1291 until today. And it's been surrounded by some pretty mean boys. Yes. Fourteenth <laughs> Napoleon. Of course, Napoleon did go in. It's not so much he conquered Switzerland. It's that when they saw this, and they're businessmen, the Swiss, they're pro mostly Protestants. <laughs> well, there's a Catholic, but they, 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 they welcomed him in. Come on in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what can we do for you? <laughs> Nobody got killed or anything. They sold cuckoo clocks and watches and brought them in. So, but uh, so they fell into to Napoleonic orbit as so as, as a lot of people did, uh, but then that didn't last long. When he fell, they came right back independent. So, mm -hmm. so little countries can survive. But here's the thing about the Greeks: they they fought the Persian Empire with over forty million, and they had only eight million uh, <clears throat> scattered around, not centralized, and. The, ex the reason they gave for why they could do that is their education. And they said that we are educated to rule and be ruled. We know how to do both. They don't. The Persian emperor knows how to rule. He's educated to be a ruler. His court is, but the rest of the people are educated simply to obey. Right. And they know how to obey, and that's all they know how to do. Right, right. When the ruler goes, they don't want know what to do. Uh, but uh, the Greeks are otherwise. There's a wonderful story on, in this connection, and it has to do with this small-scale business of republicanism. Uh, one of Plato's students named Xenophon wrote a book called Anabasis, and, and people should read it. Anabasis, A-N-A-B-A-S-I-S, -A -A -S -S, Anabasis, means the march up country. Mm -hmm. Roughly, it's the story of around 10,000 Greek mercenaries scattered from all over Greece, hired by a Persian prince to go on a military expedition. And so they need the money, and they took off, and Xenophon went along as an embedded journalist <laughs> to give him a case. Oh, this might be an interesting thing. So he went along and recorded what was going on. Well, they got, they kept going. They didn't know where they were going. Days, weeks went by, and finally, a thousand years, a thousand miles or so away, and they're told by the prince that they're going to attack the emperor of Persia. The prince wants to overthrow his daddy and become emperor. So they say, okay, whatever. <laughs> and uh, they do it, and they defeat the, the emperor in the battle, but their prince is killed. So they're stuck. And so they go to the emperor and say, look, we didn't mean any harm. We're just in it for the money. Uh, we just want to get out. That's it. So the emperor says, fine. So they start retreating. And, but the army, follow, Persian army follows them. And uh, they get worried about this. So they stop and ask for a meeting. So the Persian emperor invites them over for a banquet and they send their officers over and he kills them all except for Xenophon, I think maybe some others, they get back and they tell the story. Now, I might get this mixed up a bit, but anyway, they tell the story and um, they elect Xenophon as the leader. Because he's very eloquent. He explains to them who that we're Greeks. We, we, you know, it doesn't matter how big they are, how many, many people they have, we're Greeks, we can rule and be ruled. Mm -hmm. 
So he, he all of a sudden now he's commander. He was a journalist. Now he's a commander. And he orders them to burn, destroy all their baggage and loot because they've been collecting loot. That's what soldiers do when they, in those wars. They, they didn't have supply trains so much. They just lived off the land. <laughs> yeah. And so they had to burn their baggage and all the loot and, and be lean, mean fighting machine and get back. Uh, and the Persians fought them and they had these skirmishes all the way. They got to the Kurds and had a horrible, horrible time getting through Kurdistan. Um, but they made it. About 8,000 got back out of 10,000. Mm -hmm. um, so this is a wonderful story of, that Xenophon tells, though he doesn't make this point, but the story makes the point of, um, of what the little Greek republics, the kind of characters they could produce. Right. right. And once they got back, they all started hating each other and they went back home. <laughs> <laughs> To their, to their various, various, and then they would meet for the Olympic Games and so on. Yeah. Okay, that's a picture of a small scale republicanism that's the foundation of Western civilization. It's not the foundation, it's one of the, the set of stones in the foundation. Right, right. Well, part of it too, a Christian part, but that, that comes later. Well, how did all that fail? What? How did all it fall? How did that fail? I mean, if it started with these small city states, what changed? Well, they failed because um, everything falls. Yeah, 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 that too. <laughs> First of all, it's not a very interesting question. Uh, everything falls. It's interesting in the sense you want to know how they fail. That they fail is not very interesting because they, all political order dies. Right. Like we do. But how did they fall? Well, the Greek city states. They weren't defeated by the Persians, but they were defeated by Alexander's father, Philip of Macedon. He unified them. He didn't just beat them up, but he did unify them, and they submitted to his authority, and he regulated trade and so on. Then Alexander came in and really unified them, unified them, and um, many of them liked it, because they could make more money that way. Um, Alexander the great built Alexandria, which became one of the great cities of the world. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's, you think of it as an Egyptian city, it's not, it's a Greek city. Um, it is Egyptian now, yeah, Muslim yeah, yeah. now. Well, it was a Christian city too, after it was a pagan Greek city. <clears throat> the Romans mopped up what was left and uh, everybody was on the Roman Empire. And that was it. That's it. And the Byzantine Empire, which is the eastern wing of the Roman Empire. Right. And then when those went down, uh, we have the, quote, Middle Ages. And, and there you have the barbarians, the, the barbarian provinces on the outskirts of the empire, within the empire and on the outskirts. And basically what happened there, it's not so much that the barbarians overran the Roman citizens, it's that the Romans had been Romanizing those barbarians from the very first. Mm -hmm. They brought them in. When Rome conquered countries, they said, look, we're going to let you do what you want. You have your religion and so on, but you pay tribute. And we will come in and build roads and bathhouses like you've never seen. Mm -hmm. and establish a way of life that you can't believe. And these people liked it. Mm -hmm. The Britons liked it. Uh, some of them didn't like it, of course, but many of them did. 
And they, they not only submitted, but they bought into it, and then they became leaders, and some of them became emperors. Like Hadrian came from Spain. Mm -hmm. um, talk about social mobility. <laughs> <laughs> he came from very low origins to be emperor of Rome. Uh, so the, the, the Roman Empire just overspent and overtaxed and overextended itself and it, it just couldn't pay its people. It couldn't do this and that. And people on the outskirts were, were, were getting a better deal from the Gothic princes and warlords and the Lombards than they were from Rome. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just that Rome collapsed. Rome just failed. And then it collapses, and then we have these new kingdoms, the Gothic kingdoms in Spain, the, Goth the Lombards, all these people, they become the Europeans. And by the time of Charles Martel, they're, 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 they're countries, so. Um, well, how do we get from that to current gigantic states instead of these local regional ones? Okay, good question. Uh, you've heard of Italian unification, the unification of Italy, the unification of the 19th century, unification of Hungary, the unification, of, unification, unification, unification. Well, that presupposes that there was no unification. That presupposes that things are very decentralized. Well, let's look at that for a moment. In as late as 1700, the area called Germany was made up of, of, of around 300 states. I mean, the figures vary depending on how you carve them up. Um, I've read 230 states, I've read 300 and something states, let's say 300 states. These were principalities. Some of them were called free cities, like republics or republics. Some were cities ruled by princes, some were merchant cities, but they were independent polities. And at, very, at earlier periods, they were incorporated into the Holy Roman Empire. Italy was made up of hundreds of little republics and quasi-republics um, under princes or bishops and, or papal authority. Um, but they had a considerable degree of, uh, of independence, uh, although they, you know, they had to pay taxes to the Duke or whomever was over. Um, and some were independent, like Florence and Venice and um, Genoa and others. So you have, in the Middle Ages, you had a mosaic of thousands of, um, of uh, either kings, principalities, republics, especially in Italy, free cities, um, bishoprics, papal states, and then tens of thousands of titled noble, noble states some very small, some larger. So there was this great mosaic. Mm -hmm. And notice in this system, it's all based on property. The church owned land, the cities owned land, king owned land, and so on. The king's revenue came from his own land. So he's a big landowner. And if he didn't have enough for his projects, he would have to go beg from the dukes and the church for money. Kings are always out begging for more troops. And um, give us more troops, we'll take this territory, we'll have revenue and you'll get revenue and you'll get land. We go to the Middle East, we take over the Holy Land and then you, got all, you can set these kingdoms up. You know, you're now just a little petty duke in France, but you can be a king 
in Syria. So cough up, that sort of thing. And not only that, but the kings could not just do anything. They couldn't impose an income tax. They couldn't conscript troops. Think about that. Mm -hmm. They couldn't mortgage future revenues. They didn't figure that out until 1693. The British figured, the English figured that out. Or no, mortgage future revenues. That drove the, col the English colonists crazy. So when they got over here, they wanted to, well, <laughs> they wanted to get rid of that. Um, okay, so the kings, the kings started expanding. That's the short answer to your question. In Europe, the kings started expanding. They wanted control of um, the church. Church was the biggest landowner in England at one time. So what did Henry VIII do? He became the richest man in the world by taking over church lands. Richest man? Well, not maybe in the world, but the richest man in England. Right, right. By taking over church, church lands. Uh, this happened everywhere, Italy, France, all over the place. The king started, wherever they could do it, they took land and so on. And... Um, they and they needed more and more troops uh, and they had to buy them or conquer them or whatever so the Swiss so this process of centralization was going on and the Swiss were in, unique in that three little cantons in 1291 swore an oath to each other there's a document in Switzerland it's being shown now in Switzerland along with the Articles of Confederation <laughs> These are two. This the Swiss document is the first is the foundation of the Swiss Confederation. Three cantons got together and swore an eternal oath to each other that they would fight to maintain this little confederation and they would secede from the Holy Roman Empire. Um, that they proclaimed that and actually were able to accomplish it. I can't remember 10, 12 years later or something. Mm -hmm. They seceded. There you have it. There you have it. The little, the little canton, the little provinces. These are these are sort of like little Greek city states, right? Right. They're not actually, but I mean, you understand. They're small. They're yeah. small, and they want to govern, and they can't do it themselves. They're too small. But if we three get together, we can do it. In and the Habsburgs sent their troops in to crush this bit of mutiny in in, in Switzerland, and I uh, forgot the name of the battle. But I read accounts of it. And it's very interesting. These farmers, of course, they had, you know, as they say in militaries, terrain, terrain, terrain yeah. is the city of the battle. And they have all these hills and crevices and things. And they had captured bears, bears, yeah. <laughs> at various points. <laughs> so be coming in, they'll have these bears. They throw a bear out, they come down the crevice, land in the troops. <laughs> this, this was. Uh, Something that Austrian troops had not thought about. No kidding. <laughs> and so they, one way or another, these Swiss farmers drove them out and they decided it was not worth going back in. There wasn't that much loot to get in Switzerland. So the land wasn't all that great and they were able to survive. And then one thing, and they kept expanding. And so now Switzerland is, is a little country. Uh, the Netherlands seceded in the 16th century. They fought an 80 years war, 17 provinces in the Netherlands. <laughs> An almost non-existent country. Yeah. It's a, of, of marshes, of mud, and they have to steal land from the ocean. Yeah. 
and yet it became one of the richest uh, countries in Europe and a world power for a while. <laughs> um, little, little, the little Netherlands, life fought a war for 80 years. This tells you something about Dutch stubbornness. <laughs> <laughs> they would not give up. 80 years, and they finally got independence in 1648 from Spain, the Habsburg Empire. Uh, so here we have two examples of, of republicanism coming back. In the Middle Ages, you, you don't have republicanism, but you have small mosaics of, of independence or quasi-independent authorities, right? They're right. all over the place. But they don't think of seceding and forming a federation. They don't think of doing that. Right. But the, the Swiss did and, and the Dutch did. And so, and, and, and by the time of the Renaissance, Europeans were reading classical Greek and Latin literature. And when you read that literature, what do you do? You run into republicanism. Mm -hmm. You run into the story of Brutus, mm -hmm. Caesar, because he's, he's going to destroy the Republic. We can't have this. We're not going to have a king. We're, we were founded. 400 years, 500 years ago, not to have a king. We're not going to have a king. So European educated people, everybody read the, the Greek and Roman classics. The Pope read them, the bishops read them, the Protestants read them. And throughout Europe, people began to think, why can't we have republics? Why, why, can't, we, why can't we govern ourselves? Why do we have to submit to the king? Why do we have to sign a letter as your faithful and obedient servant? What, you know, why, do, why must the world be shaped by master and servant? Mm -hmm. And we have citizens that are equal. So republicanism began to percolate up everywhere. Italy, Spain, England, France, everywhere. Uh, among intellectuals, people who could read Greek and Latin. <clears throat> um, but the Swiss did it without reading the Greek and Latin. <laughs> they did it on their, on their own, and so the Dutch. But these examples encouraged people to think about that. And of course, there were republics still around. Venice, it's not as if they weren't any. Italy was full of them. Um, and so the idea began to spread. But the problem was, What are you going to do? Okay, you form a little republic, and Louis XIV just comes in and crushes it. Mm -hmm. And you've read about the Thirty Years' War. Yeah. Pretty nasty thing, yeah. right? Yeah. Was, was something you want to be around. What? Was it something you want to go back and visit? <laughs> yeah, that's right. What, what destroyed it? They killed about, about a third of the people in Germany in one area or something yeah. like that. So... The thought was, Rousseau wrote a famous book called The Social Contract. And uh, you, you may you know about the social, that book, the, social, the famous but social contract. So he's one of the great modern philosophers, Rousseau, Locke, Hobbes, now Hume, he didn't used to be considered Hume, um, Mill. But of those, of those five, Rousseau is the odd one because his social contract is to create a republic. And I must say, when I first started Rousseau, I did not notice what I'm going to say next. His republic has around 10,000 citizens. <laughs> it's very small. 
and he doesn't like these big monarchies. And he's trying to reestablish republicanism. <clears throat> but people are so used to monarchical thinking that the Europeans are so used to it that they cannot conceive of political order that's not large and centralized. What is the name of Hobbes' famous book? Remember? Hobbes? Leviathan. Leviathan. <laughs> Giant sea monster. Right. You can't go fishing for Leviathan. <laughs> no. You can't hook him, and if you did, you couldn't bring him in. So this is the state. It's Leviathan. It's huge. Not Athens, Florence. It's, it's huge. Millions, millions of people make it up. And um, but Rousseau is saying, no, no, we, we should have these little. His his Republic of Geneva, which he loved, couldn't live there because he could live nowhere actually. Um, his was only twenty six thousand people. Hmm. That was Geneva. That was Calvin's Geneva. So that's what Rousseau wants, but nobody else does, uh, except possibly Hume. <clears throat> and um, so anyway, uh, they don't know how to make a big republic. You just can't have republicanism in Europe, unless you want to have these little teeny states. Mm -hmm. and, and that just doesn't. So David Hume writes an essay. This is the first attempt to break through that. David Hume writes an essay, 1752. You can, you can read it in his essays, Moral, Literary, and Political, uh, inexpensive copies you can get from Liberty Fund. He writes an essay called Idea of a Perfect Commonwealth. Mm -hmm. And he raises the question, he says, the best government in the world within itself would be a small republic. Within itself, that's the best government in the world, but it can be conquered by large states. That's a pretty big deficit. He says, could he says, could you federate these little republics into a larger state while preserving the independent political independence of the republics and yet take advantage of larger size and scale, the resources of larger scale? And if you could do that, he said, you would have the perfect regime. The, Swiss, the little republic is almost perfect, but it lacks power. But if it were federated, it would have the power to resist conquest. But, uh, it, it, but only if the rules were rigged in such a way that the central authority could not intrude into the political liberty of the little units. Well, that's a big question, right? That's, been a, that's what America's been about. Is, is is trying to control the central government from intruding into the states and local right. communities. <clears throat> but anyway, that's the first attempt to really build a republic or a set of republics on a large scale. Um, well, guess who's reading Hume? Madison, Hamilton, Washington, Jefferson, they all read Hume. Hume was one of the most popular readers, philosophers, if you can say a philosopher is popular. Uh, in, in America. So the people had read this essay and they thought, ha, huh, if we secede, we have a lot of territory, but we could um, we'd still be Republicans if we, if we had a, a proper federation. 
So, okay, so to sum up, we go from the little republics of, of the Mediterranean, of the Greek and Roman Republican world, and that collapses into empire, and that goes on. Republics survive, they're suppressed, but they survive right up in the Middle Ages, right in the modern period. But in the meantime, these, these big monarchies are being built uh, around the late Middle Ages. They get bigger and bigger and bigger, and they crush more and more little republics. They crush more and more cities. Um, for revenue and troops. And it gets pretty, pretty oppressive. And so by the 18th century, people are kind of sick of it. Mm -hmm. And they begin to think, no, wait a minute, there's this other way of thinking. You, you could have a republic, couldn't you? So then they argue about what republicanism is. And that's where we, that's where we left it. Um, now maybe we can stop here. And uh, next time we could, uh, <clears throat> we could look at the American regime because there were these people called the English Republicans in the 18th century, Cato and, um, and others who argued for, for Republican. They didn't argue for getting rid of the monarchy, but they, I'm sorry, put this, they were, they were known as part of the country party. The monarchy had centralized power it had learned to mortgage future revenues. Now think about that. Well, I think we would we would believe probably that all kings knew how to do that, but they didn't. I mean, the idea of mortgaging future revenues was first of all immoral. Mm -hmm. You can go on a drunken spin. Your parents can go on a drunken spree, and then your grandchildren pay for it. That's not right. <laughs> so it wasn't done for moral reasons, but also, um, you know, it just could so. But the, Brit the British figured out how to do it. And they ran circles around the French. French were three times the population of England. Huh. The, whole British, the whole British Isles, Ireland, Scotland, three times the size. And, and the British uh, knew the only way they could have an empire was through the ocean. It had to be a blue water empire, yeah. not the land. They're not a land power. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a there's a Royal Air Force and there's a Royal Navy, but there's no Royal Army. <laughs> uh, so the British uh, had the, but they had these Republicans who criticized the corruption in the in the courts, in the central government. Today it would be the Beltway. The people in the red states outside the Beltway criticizing the Beltway. Right. right. So they were they, they they were Republicans. They were landowners. So they, they thought of themselves as Republicans, and they identified with Cicero, and they identified with Cato and these people. Um, well, the Americans drift over from Europe, England, and they, these Republicans are coming over there, these English Republicans, Washington and these people. So they take English Republicanism, which, which Rousseau was, he was, he was dealing with Republicanism, Hume was dealing with it, Kant was suggesting Republicanism in various ways. There were a number of people that were trying to figure out some way of making Europe Republican. <clears throat> and uh, so the Americans are doing the same thing. They're not doing, so, so, so across the Atlantic, you have this Republican ferment going on all over the place. Well, here in America, you can actually do it. You cut the European ties, you got all this land. Uh, and so that's where, that's, that's where we can start next time maybe. Very good. Professor, thank you very much. Anybody want to check out his website, the Abbeville Institute, I have it linked up below in the show notes. Uh, Professor, again, thank you, and we'll see you next time. Okay, Steve. Thank you. Bye-bye.